Welcome to the Glasgow Baptist Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Erdie Carter. We want to help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. Does, any, does anyone know like what walk-up songs are for like baseball? If you've ever watched a baseball game in when the hitter's about to come up, they all have a song, and before they walk up, get them hyped up. I feel like I just had a walk-up song with that video, so that was cool. Um, can we talk about how beautiful of a day it is in this weird weather that we've been having? Um, I like it because I like to golf, and so later into the year when it's still this nice out, I get to go golfing. But I also like to deer hunt. And so if you know anything about deer hunting, it's kind of hard whenever it's uh, a little warm like this. So uh, that's been fun. But the cool thing that uh, I've got to experience hunting the few times I've got to go, on, or go this year is when you're sitting up in the deer stand and you get there when it's completely dark. You walk out with a flashlight on or whatever. And you get in the sand and you're just sitting there in the darkness. And it's kind of weird, but then uh, life happens around you. Uh, the birds start chirping, uh, the squirrels start running around, and then the sun starts to rise. And I just think it's so cool that we are able to see God's glory and his goodness in creation. And I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful for this good weather. And so, already uh, has been doing a series called Running with the Giants, and he has a list of uh, giants of the faith from Hebrews that uh, he, he's going through, and he said, uh, whenever I got to preach, he said, you can just pick uh, someone that's maybe a hero of yours in the Bible, or maybe just another giant. And so, uh, if you have your bulletin, uh, you see that we're going to be in Nehemiah today. Uh, we're going to be talking about Nehemiah. And so, the book of Nehemiah is the, you know, the continue of the story uh, from the book of Ezra, and Ezra is right before Nehemiah. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we'll be hanging out Nehemiah for the day. And so the book of Ezra and Ezra himself is kind of focused on uh, kind of a spiritual reform. And that um, he's kind of focused on God's law. And so, and Nehemiah here is a little bit different. Yeah, he's still focused on God's glory, still focused on living out God's law. But Nehemiah is tasked, or he's, 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 he has a huge task. A huge task. And so if you've read, if you've read the story, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, he's going to be charged uh, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He's going to be charged to go and do this great work. And so not to state the obvious, but the book of Nehemiah is named after Nehemiah, the writer, and he is a central figure of the book. And he's a really interesting job. Or an inter- he, has a, he is an interesting guy, but he also has an interesting job. And so um, if you know the story, you know that he is a cupbearer. He's a cupbearer to the king of Persia, and this king's name is Artaxerxes. Um, I think that's the coolest name. If any of y'all are going to have any kids, name one Artaxerxes. I think that'd be cool. Because we get biblical names like Daniel or like John, but no Artaxerxes or maybe like an Enoch or something. That'd be cool. Uh, but King Artaxerxes, he's the cupbearer to the king. And so when, you read, when we read in the first chapter, uh, we, don't, we don't find out right off the bat of what Nehemiah's position is. Uh, we get into uh, Nehemiah, and we get a report from Jerusalem, and then we go into Nehemiah's praying, and then after the prayer, right before chapter 2, um, Nehemiah just says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. And so what does it mean to be a cupbearer? What does this guy do, or what does this person do as a cupbearer? Is it someone who follows the king around with like this golden chalice, and it's filled with wine, and, and he says, oh, cupbearer, I'm thirsty, and they just follow him around all day? No, it's a little bit different. 
And so naturally, being the cupbearer, this would mean that all food and drink that's going to go to the king has to pass inspection of the cupbearer, and that cupbearer is Nehemiah. So anything that's going to King Artaxerxes has to get the approval from Nehemiah. And don't get it twisted, Nehemiah is not like this food critic who's making sure, you know, the meat's cooked properly and the wine is okay. He's making sure that no one is trying to poison the king. And so this is an interesting job for Nehemiah, because if someone tries to poison the king, that means the cupbearer is going to die first. And so, um, the job has its, you know, dangers, you know, death, that's a big danger, but just think about the food and the drink that the king and the palace will have. They have all the best wine, all the best food. Uh, Nehemiah has a pretty cool job just as long as he doesn't die. And so, yeah, it sounds pretty good. So the king would have huge spreads of food, um, but Nehemiah is not a food critic and he's not on Master Chef. He's just making sure the king's not get poisoned. So Nehemiah uh, is making sure the food and the drink are fine. And he's making sure no one's going to poison it or, tem- or attempt to harm the king. And so Nehemiah is far more than just a taste tester. And so the role of the cupbearer can be looked at as a taste tester because that's basically what it is. But Nehemiah does a whole lot more. And so if someone's going to be the cupbearer of the king, wouldn't it be... Uh, pretty smart to ensure your own safety? Wouldn't it be pretty smart for you to make sure that you're going to guarantee your own safety in this position, just not the king's? Because if you can guarantee, if Nehemiah can, can guarantee that he's going to be safe, that means that the king is going to be safe. If you cannot guarantee that your own life's going to be safe as the cupbearer, you're not going to have much job security. Put yourself in the place of Nehemiah. Put your, you know, put his sandals on and see where he is. If this is your job, wouldn't you take every precaution? Wouldn't you take every preventative measure to make sure that nothing's getting into the food or the drink that is going to the king? It'd be pretty wise for Nehemiah to have some oversee. If you are wise, if Nehemiah is wise, it seems very important that he would go to these great measures to ensure nothing's going to happen to him because if he doesn't, he's not going to be the cupbearer for very long. If you're going to take the role as the cupbearer to the king, wouldn't it be a really good idea for you to have authority in the palace, in the city? A guy named Jim Hamilton, he's a professor at Southern Seminary, and he's also a preacher. Uh, he brought up the idea that don't you think it would be the best interest of King Artaxerxes and Nehemiah himself, that Nehemiah would have great authority and uh, power in the palace and in the city? Because wouldn't it be smart if Nehemiah was just able to oversee the whole city? Wouldn't it be important if Nehemiah was able to oversee the whole palace? Wouldn't it be important if Nehemiah knew of everything and everyone that was coming into the city? If Nehemiah has this role of authority and power that he's able to oversee everything, what are the chances of someone being able to poison something? Nehemiah is going to have great authority here. It would be smart for Nehemiah to not just oversee the city, but oversee employees or servants at the palace. It'd be important for Nehemiah to understand who's working there. It'd be important for Nehemiah to understand who's preparing the food, who's going to get the food, or who's accepting the food, and who's serving the food. Because that's a lot of hands that the food and drink have to go through. And so if Nehemiah is in charge of all these people, he's ensuring that he has his own safety, and also King Artaxerxes is going to be safe. This would be extremely wise for Nehemiah to have this authority, as well as King Artaxerxes giving him authority. 
Nehemiah is going to have a lot of power in this role. It would just be a lot easier if King Arxerxes said, Nehemiah, you can do whatever you want. Whatever you do is fine as long as you protect me. I'm sure King Arxerxes, uh, his cupbearer, his, his Nehemiah, I'm sure they were best friends. If someone's going to be, you know, the, the lifeline between me and death, I think I'm going to be pretty close to that guy. They had, you know, they share all the meals together. They share all the drinks together. They spend a lot of time together. Nehemiah, Nehemiah has a lot of authority and power in the king's house. And this is so wise for Nehemiah because he's providing himself safety and he's providing himself elite job security and he's providing a way to keep the king of Persia safe. If I was a king, Nehemiah has free reign. And if I was Nehemiah, I'd say, I need, some, I need some more power. I need some more authority to make sure that I don't die to make sure that you don't die. I bet Nehemiah was a huge overthinker. Because we know that Nehemiah's got to be a big picture guy. If he has all this authority over the land, he's a big picture guy. And I'm sure he was an overthinker coming from an overthinker. I know he was an overthinker. Because he's thinking of as all the different crazy scenarios that could happen, all the different crazy possibilities that someone can poison him. And Nehemiah has thought over each and every scenario. He's seen what has happened before it has happened. And he's prepared for it. And it's so extremely hard to uh, surprise or, or trick an overthinker because for an overthinker has already thought of all scenarios possible and has, and has already figured out how to get out of them. And those overthinkers in those random scenarios that come in their head, they're usually never, ever going to happen. But the overthinker is always prepared. The, over, the overthinker cannot get caught off guard or surprised. So that, now that we know what Nehemiah's job is, that he's not just a taste tester or a butler, we know that Nehemiah is a man with massive influence and authority. Nehemiah is important, and he works directly under King Artaxerxes. And nothing comes to King Artaxerxes without the stamp of approval from Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles open to Nehemiah, um, we're going to be jumping around the first probably six chapters. We're not going to read it all, don't worry. Um, but if you have your Bibles open, look at uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. And so this is a, a report from Nehemiah's brother of what has happened in Jerusalem. So the Bible says here in verse 2 and 3, um, Scripture says that Hanani, one of the brothers, came with a certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant that there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah's brother comes and Nehemiah has learned is what has happened to the Jews that have escaped exile. And he has also learned that Jerusalem is broken. Jerusalem is on fire. The walls and gates are messed up. So why is this important to Nehemiah? Why would the cupbearer to the king of Persia care about Jerusalem and its people? Why would someone in this role of authority in the Persians care about this? It just so happens Nehemiah's heritage is Jewish. Jerusalem is the land of the ancestors of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is from the Jewish background. And Nehemiah cares deeply about his people, cares deeply about his land. 
Now start piecing all this together. Start piecing it all together. Nehemiah, cupbearer, lots of power in the Persian Empire under King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is Jewish. Who is the lifeline to the king of Persia, a Jew named Nehemiah? They, they've got to be dear friends, yet he fears that his homeland is in ruins and maybe, just maybe, he can help. Because if someone just random in the, you know, in the Persian Empire who doesn't have any power or authority in this, maybe like a servant level who is uh, Jewish, can't do anything. But Nehemiah is not just a normal person. He's a person with massive power and massive influence, and his best friend is the king. During this time, cities would have walls and gates to protect them, right? And so why do you lock your doors at night? Hopefully you lock your doors at night. Why do you lock your doors at night? To protect you, right? To keep you safe. That's why these cities have massive walls and gates, is to keep them safe from invaders. I don't think, you know, our neighborhoods or houses are getting invaded by anybody, but I remember, uh, I think I was in fourth grade, one night, it was 3 a.m., uh, I grew up in a neighborhood, and some guy, I'm assuming it was a guy, kicked in our back door. And, you know, it was locked and everything, but he was still able to uh, break it down. And so just because, you know, we're not going to get invaded, there's still people out there who want to cause evil. So during this time, the cities would have walls and gates as a defense from invaders, and it would serve as a great protection. So here's the problem. Jerusalem is a city without walls. Many people are there, and there's nothing good going on. They don't have any protection. And yet Nehemiah finds himself in a tough spot. He sees the, where uh, his family's from. He sees uh, uh, Jerusalem as what it once was, and he sees of what's going to happen to it and what has already happened to it. Now look down at verse 4. This is a part of Nehemiah's prayer. It says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept, and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah here is emotionally involved. If Jerusalem and its people didn't matter to Nehemiah, why would he pray for days? Why would he fast for days? And why would he weep? Nehemiah is crushed. So one word in verse 4 is very important, and it's wept. Do we understand uh, what it means to weep? This isn't, you know, the reg regular like sniffle and cry. Uh, this is like uh, an uncontrollable emotion that's pouring out of your soul. One person, uh, I can't remember who it was, but they said that crying is more about the sound you make, but weeping is more about the tears that you produce. So an example of crying, babies, right? They cry because they're hungry or they're tired or basically anything else because that seems like babies just cry for nothing. <laughs> but that's what babies do, right? They scream and they cry. Or even a toddler or a youngster, uh, you know when the, like a young toddler does that fake cry? Like, you're not crying. There's no tears. He's just wailing. So that's what crying is, just the sound. But think about when we mature and grow older. I would assume everyone here has wept at least once, wept over something at least once. Maybe it was a death of, uh, the death of a loved one. That's something that may cause you to weep. Or maybe it's uh, the pain of a heartbreak. 
And the pain of a heartbreak has many, many different things. That could be, you know, a relationship that ended. That can be a child that is uh, not following the Lord and it breaks your heart. It could be uh, a broken relationship in the family where a brother or sister, uncle, dad, whatever, and you don't have that relationship and it breaks your heart. Heartbreak is rough. Or it could be like something that Nehemiah is facing. And he's seeing the possible destruction and disintegration of the nation that you are from. And you can't do anything about it. Look at verse 5 and 6. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house has sinned. And so Nehemiah here is saying, God, we, I understand we have failed you over and over and over. And we do not deserve your help. We don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve your forgiveness. We have sinned. We have failed. We have missed the mark. But we need your help. Nehemiah here is pleading for God's help, mercy, and forgiveness that the, for these things that the Israelites don't deserve. But friends, we cannot sit here and feel sorry for Nehemiah or the Israelites because you and I are in the same boat. We don't deserve God's mercy. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve God's forgiveness. You and I, we fall into sin every single day, day in and day out. I can guarantee all of us will sin. We miss the mark, we fail. We will continue to do this every day to the day that you and I die and leave this earth. And if it wasn't for the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for you and I, he took our place, he died for you and I, that we could be reconnected with the Father, we would be damned to hell for eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Just like Nehemiah and his people, we are not in the spiritual battle called life alone. We have a Father in heaven that is guiding every step of our journey. And so do we understand Nehemiah's dilemma? He wants to help his people. He wants to help Jerusalem, yet his loyalty is to the king. Why is this such a big deal? Who do you think tore down the walls? Who do you think attacked Jerusalem? Nehemiah is hindered by his job, but Nehemiah prays to the God that's hindered by nothing. And this is why he prayed, he wept, and he fasted, because he knew the only way any of this was going to work is if that God was in it. Are we like Nehemiah? Do we treat prayer as our first option, or do we treat it like a last resort? Do we understand the power that prayer holds? And so one pastor said this about prayer. It says, prayer changes things. Not because of the power that is in the prayer itself, but because of the power, I'm sorry, but because it is through the power of the prayer that God has ordained and to direct events and steer the courses of history. 
The words that we send up don't have any weight, but the, all the weight is from the God who spoke everything into existence. Nehemiah didn't treat this prayer as a one and done. He didn't throw this prayer up to God and was like, okay, I prayed once, that's good. No, he went back to it multiple times. He fasted. He wept. Church, let us be like Nehemiah. When we are faced with tough things like this, let us be intentional in our prayer. Let it be our first option, not our last resort. We see this prayer that Nehemiah has despite having much power in Persia. Nehemiah is a powerful guy. He wants to see Jerusalem return to its former glory. Nehemiah wants to protect God's kingdom. He wants to seek God's glory. And through all this, he wants to see God's law be lived out and established in Jerusalem. Look over at chapter 2, verses 2 to 6. So Nehemiah has prayed and wept and fasted. Now Nehemiah is about to get bold. In verse 2 it says, And the king said to me, oh, So, uh, back up, Nehemiah has come to, I guess, the dinner table, taken a drink of wine, and usually the king could tell um, if something was bad about the meat or the drink by the face that the cupbearer would make. So Nehemiah probably drank it uh, before this scenario, drank it and was like, oh yeah, smiled, that's good. Uh, during this one, he drank it and didn't do nothing. It says his, his face was sad. And so the king, after he drank, drank it from Nehemiah, was like, he's not smiling, do I need to drink this? And so he probably set it down and he's like, Nehemiah, what is wrong with you? And so in verse 2 it says, and the king said, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? That is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? And the gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God in heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, and the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I'd given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And the letter of Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, the gates of the fortress of the temple... I skipped the verse, I'm sorry, of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house I will occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good of the hand of God was upon me. And so Nehemiah got super bold. He didn't just make one request. He didn't make two requests, he made three. And they all got, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, the, obviously, the king has a great relationship with Nehemiah because he saw how he was looking, and he knew something was messed up. He knew Nehemiah was not feeling himself. And so, Nehemiah takes the wine, and he looks sad, right? He takes the wine, he looks sad, so the king probably didn't drink, and he was like, what's up, Nehemiah? Uh, and so, the king... Uh, and Nehemiah speak, and it's visible that Nehemiah is distraught about Jerusalem. And so the king sees this, and he asks, are you okay? What's going on? And then Nehemiah, he said, what do you want? And Nehemiah said, I want to go rebuild the city. Tensions are high in this scenario. Tensions are high in this conversation. And this is either going to go one or two ways. 
right? Uh, and thankfully, Nehemiah has found favor in God that he will be able to go on this task. Now that the king, uh, this king is not really wanting to see Jerusalem thrive again, would it make much sense for a king of one place to want to see their neighbors become strong again? It doesn't make much sense. Yet, Nehemiah, he cares deeply for Nehemiah, and if you care deeply for the people in your life, you will care deeply for the things that burden them. The king here wants to take Nehemiah's sadness away. So Nehemiah makes a request, and the king here is sitting here with the queen. He says, may I go rebuild the city? But that's not all. Like, that's a big ask. But he's got two more. Then in verse 7 and 9, Nehemiah makes another request. He needs letters from the governors. This is basically taking a security team along with himself to be able to rebuild. Nehemiah is bold. And so Nehemiah has, the, has a favor in the Lord of what must be done. And the Lord is going to work through Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem. And Nehemiah understands, understands his scriptures because he understands that Jerusalem uh, will, will be the place that God's law will be lived out to the ends of the earth. The whole book of Nehemiah can be summed up like this. Nehemiah was completely concerned with the glory of God. That is what is driving Nehemiah to get the walls rebuilt because he wants to see God's glory be examined and produced out of Jerusalem and he wants to see God's people be protected and he wants to see God be glorified through Jerusalem. One of the funniest things in these verses, he asks, can I go rebuild this city? King says, yes. Can you send some papers with me to allow me safe passage? Yes. And then the last one, it says, can you send me with all the lumber and the timber to complete this task? I think that's funny that the king would send him with all the supplies needed. So why does Nehemiah have to be the one to come help? Why does Nehemiah have to be the one to do this? Nobody in Jerusalem was fit for the task. Think about it. Nehemiah is a big picture guy, right? He's an overseer. He's an overthinker. He's prepared for this. He's made for this. God decided to use Nehemiah. That's all. Nehemiah wasn't a special guy. I'm sure he was great and nice to be around. He's just a normal guy. He's a normal guy who was concerned for God's glory and said, here I am, send me. And God had ordained all this before Nehemiah ever existed. Nehemiah was the only one fit for this task. And God decided to use Nehemiah to accomplish his goal. So Nehemiah continues to be the overseer of all that is happening. And you think back as a cupbearer, he's, he's always looking at the big picture and he never lost focus of the big picture because he uses the here and now to see the big picture. And so now Nehemiah is coming to build and unite the Jews. So look at verses 17 to 18. It says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins when its gates burns. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer. And I told them of the hand of my God had been upon me for the good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands and got to work. So Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, rallies everybody together, and now they're going to rebuild it. Nehemiah cast a vision of what is to come. But even through this great unity, there's going to be some mockery, right? In verse 20, there's a group that are mocking the Jews 
They're saying, oh, you can't build it. This is, this is not going to work. Then in chapter 4, if you flip over to chapter 4, we see a guy in this story, in this little section of the scriptures, basically the, basically the opposition of the project. And this guy, he was not too happy with the rebuild. He was angry with the Jews, and he had a funny uh, remark here. He said that the wall was so feeble that a fox could knock it over. Each time they were being mocked, each time that they were uh, being made fun of during this project, they knew that there was a God in heaven protecting them. They knew that there was a God who ordained this task. And every time they went to pray, every time they treated prayer as the, as the first option, not the last resort. And so later in chapter 4, we begin, or we read that uh, Nehemiah and his people were threatened with attacks. This is not an easy work environment. And then uh, in chapter 4, look at verses uh, 16 to 17. And so they've been working. Uh, it's been up and down. Uh, they've been threatened with attacks. But now look at verse 16 and 17. It says, From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half of them held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. Who were building on the wall, those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held a weapon with the other. So Nehemiah here is continuing to go to the Lord for strength to complete this task. And so they've had all these threats. They've had all these people that have wanted to not allow them to rebuild the city. Yet they continue to rely on the Father for strength. And if you look at it, Nehemiah cut his workforce in half. There's, not, there's half of them that are building the wall, and the other half are standing behind those workers with shields and spears. Talk about someone having your back. You're over there putting up, you know, this wall, and someone behind you is making sure no one comes to attack you, and they're having the spear. Nehemiah has seen all the threats, has seen all the attacks. Nothing is stopping Nehemiah because he knows this is what God has for him. And if you see in uh, chapter 6, go all the way over to verse 15, the wall is finished. So through everything that they've endured, all the hardships, all the threats, all the attacks, they don't quit. They don't stop. They've seen that this is what God has called them to do, and they work. They work. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. 52 days, and they rebuild the wall. I don't know how long it took to build the first time, but 52 days seems pretty impressive. Nehemiah continued to work, continued to lead, continued to say, here I am, send me. They did this huge task in a short amount of time, and word began to spread. Did you hear about what happens in Jerusalem? The walls rebuilt. Really? How long did it take? 52 days. Nehemiah took on this mission because God called him to it. And this, Nehemiah didn't do this in the, in the idea that he said, you know what, people thousands and thousands of years later in Kentucky are going to remember me because I helped to rebuild a wall. He didn't do that. Nehemiah took on this task because God led him. Nehemiah took a risk here. He took a risk. 
So Nehemiah had power in Persia. Nehemiah had authority and power in Persia. If anything, going on this task, going on this mission, answering yes to the Lord, that could have been big trouble for Nehemiah. He could have lost everything. But Nehemiah saw of all the things he could lose, but he saw the greater reward that is fulfilling God's calling in your life. Nehemiah was just a regular guy who said yes. God put it on his heart that he needed to help the people and go through and do this and will work under God's protection. Nehemiah was able to accomplish this task set in motion by God. And so the beautiful thing about Nehemiah and this story is that these people were lost. These people were devastated. They saw destruction. They saw danger. They saw doom. They saw destruction because the city was destroyed. They saw danger because there was no walls to protect them. The walls were destroyed and the people were sent to exile. They saw danger because when they returned, they had no protection from invaders. They were not safe. There wasn't any hope. Without the walls, they had doom looming in their future because they were not safe. They don't seem to have much hope. They seem to be lost. But we know that they know God's law. And they know that God keeps his promises. And, he, and God promises never to lose those who belong to him. Thankfully, God never loses those who belong to him. And if we stop and look at the big picture of this whole story, how do you think Nehemiah even got into the position he was in? How do you think all that worked out? How do you think that he, a Jew, got into position of the Persian Empire to be the right-hand man of the king? How do you think all this came about? Do you think it's by chance? No. God, in his infinite wisdom, saw Nehemiah said, I'm going to use this random person, this normal guy who wasn't much different from you and I, and he says, I am going to restore Jerusalem's glory through him. God put Nehemiah in this place, in this time, for this reason. He said, Nehemiah, you don't know it yet, but I'm going to accomplish great things through you. Nehemiah was just a sinful person like you and I, yet he was, he was able just to say, here I am, Lord, send me. And he accomplished something great. Nehemiah was just a man who loved God and wanted to see God's eternal plans come together in Jerusalem. And he wanted to see the redemption of Israel and the glory of God go to the ends of the earth. So we see where God put Nehemiah. We see where he placed Nehemiah. We saw that Nehemiah had a great purpose in life. So think, where has God placed you? What's the place God has put you in? What is the Jerusalem that needs to, re that needs to be rebuilt in your life? What is that task? What has God shown you that must be done? Each of us have a direct calling and purpose on our lives. We all have something that we have been made to do. Are we fulfilling that calling? Are we fulfilling that purpose? In the age of where many people around us are deconstructing their faith, people are taking a faith they've had for years and tearing it apart. 
How about we turn into a people that we construct our faith? How about we turn into a people that we build up believers around us? How about we turn into people who build up a city of believers? What would it look like if we were like Nehemiah and said, here I am, send me. Here I am, a willing servant, a sinner who just wants to see God's glory. What if we build our foundation on Jesus Christ? Maybe someone here today needs to be rebuilt. Maybe there's someone who's been struggling in their faith. Maybe there's someone who's been walking away from the Lord. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how bad you've been or what you've done, we're never too far gone for the love of Christ. Jesus here is like the father of the prodigal son. He's standing there with arms wide open, waiting to hug you, waiting to embrace you, waiting to welcome you home. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ, I beg you, start that today. Don't put it off. Following Christ is the single most important thing anybody can do, and that can start today. Would you pray with me?